Good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine, I'm the lead pastor, and it's so good to have you guys with us here today. Um, welcome to week two of You Asked For It. In this series, we've been collecting your questions online of what you want us to address from the stage and what are the things that you'd like to hear us preach about. What are the questions that you have that you would like to hear the church address? Um, Last week, we talked about Christianity being the only way to heaven. Next week, we're going to talk about moving past the guilt of our mistakes. But this week, we are answering what is hands down our most voted for message. Now, if this is your first time joining us this morning, you picked an interesting morning to be here. Um, I remember I was in middle school one time, and uh, I, I, my friend's older brother had gotten into some kind of trouble where his parents felt called, compelled to hold a family meeting that night while I was spending the night. And so I had to sit in this family meeting, and I, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, please somebody come get me out of here right now. But it was an interesting thing. Being there in that moment, I was able to really see the heart of that family. And it was impressive. And so what I hope is, if, if this is your first time joining us, that it's like you're sitting in on a family meeting today, a family meeting out of a compulsion to love one another better. And my hope is that through sitting here, you will know the heart of this family, that you will know the heart of who we are and what we aim to do. This topic that we're talking about today is one that the church doesn't talk about often. And then oftentimes when it is talked about, it comes from a place of frustration. So we want to take a different approach today. Today, I want to answer the question of what does the Bible teach about LGBT and why does it matter? This conversation is complex. I was sitting in my office on Monday attempting to write this message and I had a thought. This would be easy if I just compartmentalize it, if I make it about a simple biblical issue and just teach the Bible. But that's not what Jesus would do. And it's not a simple issue. It's not just about what the Bible teaches. It's about the people affected by it. It's about the person listening. And see, Jesus wouldn't make it just about what the Bible says. Jesus would make it about the heart of the listener. And that's a lot harder. But that's what I aim to do here today. There's a lot of walls around this subject. So let's talk about that for a minute. Our beliefs and our experiences around this topic have led us to build walls between us and anyone who believes differently. And often for good reason. This topic represents a lot of hurt and a lot of pain for a lot of people. Our media and our overall culture has forced us to take sides on this topic. If you don't support gay rights, you hate these people. If you don't hate these people, you have to support this area. We've been forced to take sides against one another. Every person has a story, and every person's story matters to God, and it matters to me. We're not taking this lightly. This week, we had some people from our community who are in same-sex relationships over at my house because I wanted to give them the opportunity to share their stories and to respond and to have conversations around this. 
For many of them, this is the first positive experience they've had in a church. I want it to continue to be that way. I want them to know that they matter to me and that their stories matter to me. I believe Jesus valued people's stories. And so I've got a list of five questions that I want to answer today, and we'll kind of move through this in that order. First, I want to, I want to ask, how did Jesus relate to humanity? Second, what is sin and why is our view of sin important? Then why does it even matter what the Bible says? Four, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And then five, what does this mean for my life? Here's what I want to ask of you. Be open. Let your walls down. Let's be one family, one people here today. Not a room full of people on different sides. Let's be open to one another. Know that I am for you. I don't have any agenda here other than to love you today. This isn't about politics. It's about people. And I want to try to show you God's best for your life. This really is the beginning of a conversation. We may not see eye to eye on everything, by the end of this message, but we can be a people who are known for love and the way that we treat one another. So let's agree to treat one another with love, respect, and kindness today. Okay, let's get started. Number one, how did Jesus relate to humanity? John's gospel is different from the other gospels for a few different reasons. It tells some different stories. It offers some different perspectives. John was the last to write his gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written and were in wide circulation in the church by the time John sat down to write his gospel. And so I believe John saw these other gospels and he wanted to do something differently. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke really set out to tell you who Jesus is and what Jesus did, I believe John set out to tell you how Jesus made you feel. And so he invited you to a wedding with Jesus at Cana. And he brought you out into the boat with Jesus on a stormy night. And he stood you at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus would call him out of the grave. And John opens up his gospel with a poem. A poem about the nature of Jesus. Not just who he was, but what he is. It says, in the beginning is how he opens his gospel, calling to mind the first words of Genesis. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think in that last line, we see the key to every interaction that Jesus had with people. These two traits defined every word that passed his lips. And I believe this is who he was teaching his disciples to be. And I believe this is who he wants his church to be today. First, I think he wants us to embody his grace through unconditional love. Unconditional love. In a previous writing, John wrote about the way God and Jesus love. He says in 1 John 4, 7-13, through 13, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If we love one another well, God's love is made complete in us. And I believe Jesus embodied this, that he was this, he is this. Jesus wanted us to show love so well that he taught enemy love. And he taught us to love the people that would try to kill us actively while he was on the cross. He, he spoke forgiveness and love over the very soldiers who were killing him. Jesus taught love in a way that was unique, that has never been matched before or after. And I think this brings up an important word distinction. There is a massive difference between tolerance and acceptance. See, the world tells us to tolerate, but Jesus calls us to acceptance. See, tolerance is what I do with cooking shows. Listen, I love my wife, and occasionally, and she will tell you it's not very often, I let her watch cooking shows when we settle in for the night. But I hate these shows with every fiber of my being. They are all exactly the same. You can't eat any of the food that they make, and they're trying to create drama over making chicken. I'm sorry, Bobby Flay, but it doesn't matter how intense the music is. The stakes just aren't that high here. You're making chicken, okay? It's either good or it's not. I don't get to eat it anyways, so who cares? I tolerate these shows sometimes, but I hate them. Tolerate is what you do with a coworker who drives you crazy. You allow them to live and tolerate their annoying behavior. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus approaches people with unconditional love that pours out of his grace. See, the grace of Jesus says your behavior can't make me love you any more or any less. I love you. I see you. I sacrifice for you. I accept you. Jesus calls us to acceptance. And acceptance is better than tolerance. I want to have this kind of unconditional love for others. But Jesus also embodied uncompromising truth. Uncompromising truth. Jesus never shied away from talking about the hard stuff. He never hesitated to say things that made him less popular. He always spoke directly to the heart of a situation. There is a way of life that God blesses that is full of joy and peace. And if we are unwilling to acknowledge where we are off from that path, where life is not as it should be, we get to a place where we can no longer grow. Because your growth requires both truth and grace. If you are going to the gym and you hire a personal trainer and tell them you want to lose weight, it's not very loving for your coach to ignore the fact that you just keep eating cinnamon rolls. You and I need the truth to flourish. 
And for the church to flourish as a body of people, we need both truth and grace together. They're not in competition with one another like our culture wants us to believe. They're constantly at work together to form our hearts. Because truth without grace hardens the human heart. And grace without truth is a license to do whatever we want to do. And either one keeps us from growing. And Jesus held these two together perfectly. Even when he spoke difficult truth, it was an expression of God's love for us. So that leads us to the second question. What is sin? And why does our view of sin matter? Why is it important? Billy Graham defined sin as any thought or action that falls short of God's perfect will. You see, in the beginning, God gave man a choice. Choose to eat from the tree of life or the tree of knowledge. God told them that to choose the tree of knowledge would be an act of disobedience and it would result in death. If they didn't eat from it, they could eat from the tree of life and live in in relationship with their creator forever. But man chose the tree of knowledge. And in doing so, they committed sin and created new ways for all of their descendants to choose sin as well. Now, I got a lot of questions on our submissions about why God would do this. And I believe the answer is because God wanted us to choose Him. To choose Him. To choose to love Him. To obey Him out of love and not force. And there's an important difference. See, prisoners obey their wardens because they have to under force. But I do what my wife asks me to do out of my love for her. You see the difference. Love based in choice is love. Forced love is abuse. So God gave us a choice. There is a pathway to life through Jesus that is filled with joy and peace and satisfaction and purpose. And there is a pathway to death which is filled with frustration and anger and pain and regret. And God knew we would all make some wrong choices. That's why Jesus gave his life to make it right. But his heart for us is that we would, out of love, do our very best to make the right choices. In fact, that we would surrender our will out of love to the one who has loved us first. That's why Jesus never compromised on speaking the truth out of love. And the Bible says that when we do that for one another, it makes us more like Jesus. In Ephesians 4.15 it says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. In other words, the more we speak truth in love to one another, the more it pushes us towards God's design for us. But Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is an important point as well. We all fall short. Every single one of us. Today we're going to talk about one sin of many. And not a single person in here is without sin. Not a single person in this room is without blame. Nobody's sin outweighs anybody else's. Every single one carries consequences. 
and they all move us in the wrong direction for our lives. And the good news is in Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death, but the, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But it says the wages of sin is death. All sins carry consequences. Some in our lives, some in the lives of others, some in the next life. My sin carries consequences. Sometimes I am unbelievably selfish. I place myself above my wife and daughters in a way that is sin. I think of my desire for solitude over my wife's desire for companionship. I think of my desire for a moment to sit and rest over my daughter's need for focused play from her dad. I spend money on myself and leave little left over for them. And when I sin in this way, the consequences are tangible. My wife and I will have trouble communicating. We're short with one another. We don't connect, and it's my fault. My daughter will act out through her behavior in tantrums. And it's not her fault, it's mine. We get financially stretched. And it's because I wanted to spend money instead of consulting my wife who would have told me to save it. When we lie to the people that we love, it always bears consequences. Over time, trust is diminished and the relationship suffers. Sometimes it takes a very long time for the consequences of our sin to catch up with us. And without God's grace in our lives, sin can even create eternal separation from God. And I believe sin breaks God's heart. I believe it breaks His heart. God has the heart of a father. And when we sin, I believe it hurts. And the reason it breaks His heart is because it breaks people and it destroys lives. I believe God is against sin because He is for you. God is against sin because He is for you. He can see the end. He can see the whole of your life and knows which paths result in joy and which ones result in pain. We've got a gate up on our back deck at my house. The other day I was sitting out there with both my daughters while my wife was out and my attention was focused on the infant in my arms. And Eleanor, my oldest, was upset about the gate being closed because she wanted to play in the driveway, our shared driveway. But I told her no. Since I wasn't able to stay with her to keep her safe, I needed her to stay up on our deck or down in our fenced-in yard. And she got so upset with me. She was furious. All she could think about was the fun she would have down in the driveway but I could see the danger. And after crying for a few minutes, she went back down in our backyard, and right about that time, our neighbor came flying up the driveway into his parking spot. You see, I believe all of God's boundaries are for your blessing. All of God's boundaries are for your blessing. And I believe this is especially true when it comes to our sexuality. You are more than your sexuality or your sexual identity. But we must acknowledge that our sexual activity impacts every part of who we are. Brokenness in this area leads to a tremendous amount of pain. 1 Corinthians 6.18 warns us, flee from sexual immorality. 
All other sins a person commits are outside his body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. This is talking about all sexual sin. It's important that you know that because sometimes as Christians, we focus in on homosexual behavior and we place it on a level different from everything else. But the Bible warns us against all kinds of sexual sin. And if we widen the meaning here, it affects every single one of us. Not a single person in this room would be exempt from what it is describing in that verse. This is visible, the way that it affects us, the way that it hurts us. It's visible in pornography addictions. It's visible in marital affairs. The sexual sins that we commit permeate every aspect of our lives. Porn addictions affect our ability to be intimate with others, even on an emotional level. Marital affairs systematically break down trust in the most important relationships that we have. Sexual assault done to us leads to a lifetime of pain and trauma to clean up. Having sex before marriage in a heterosexual relationship leads to twice as high a likelihood of divorce because we rob sex of its intimacy. God's boundaries on sex aren't there to confine us. They're meant to offer us freedom in an area filled with potential to hurt. So number three, why does it even matter what the Bible says? The heart of my beliefs on this and on everything else hang on my conviction that the Bible matters, that it matters deeply, that it's the words of God. My life has been transformed by the words in this book. I didn't become a Christian the way most people do. Most people will have a heart transformation and then they will accept scriptures when they follow Jesus, when they enter into a relationship with Jesus. It was the opposite for me. I, I, I didn't trust God, and then I read the Bible cover to cover, and I saw the overall picture of a God who would pursue me, of a God who wanted relationship with me, of a God who was willing to love me despite the mistakes that I had made, and it transformed me. And so I gave my life to Jesus based on the truth of His words. And I believe that the more I study it, and the more I accept it as truth and the more I apply what it's teaching to my life in the easy ways and the hard ways, the closer I see myself moving towards who God's called me to be. The more I feel His purpose in my life. The more I feel His blessing on my life. The more satisfaction that I found. The more peace I find. In 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, it says, And how from infancy... You've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's God-breathed. Even though this message comes through broken human beings, it is the inspired Word of God. These are His words. And they are useful in making us who we are meant to be. And I believe that churches that have a high view of Scripture and the authority of the Bible see God's blessing in them. We believe this is a big part of why God is blessing the gathering church. In fact, I believe it's a big part of what many of you love about our church. And there's been a diminishing 
of the importance of the Bible in our current culture. It's been kind of pushed aside and out of the way as it becomes more and more inconvenient against our modern cultural way of thinking. But I believe it's holy and sacred and important. I think there tends to be two ways of looking at the Bible. One is when we use it as a magnifying glass. See, sometimes our our tendency as we read it is to use it to look at others. We think, oh man, I wish my kids would read this. Or, oh man, my boss needs to hear this proverb. Or, wow, my spouse needs this verse. I'm going to write it up on the fridge so that she'll see it and think I put it there for me, but it'll convict her. It's going to be good. And sometimes as Christians, this is our tendency And I think the church as a whole has been guilty of this. We zero in on one thing, one sin that we don't struggle with, and we make it our focus for a time. Ever notice how we have way more patience with people who struggle with the same thing that we do? Like maybe you're great with self-control, but you really struggle with patience. And it's easy when you get around somebody else who struggles with patience to ignore the things that you struggle with and focus only on the things others are struggling with. See, I think that this is what the church has done in many ways to the gay community. I believe that the Bible was meant to be viewed in terms more of a mirror than a magnifying glass. Each of us meant to examine ourselves and our own struggles and let the Word move us closer to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. And this is hard. If we just look at the teachings of and the words of Jesus, this topic is really difficult. Because Jesus never gets asked about homosexuality. He never specifically teaches about it. So in a situation like this, here's how we have to study the Bible and make this decision. We study the whole counsel of Scripture. We look at the narrative from start to finish and we decide what it says. We look at what the Bible affirms as good and we look at what the Bible corrects as wrong. An example of this is slavery. In the 1860s, there were Christians who were using some teachings in the Bible that mention having slaves to suggest that the Bible promotes slavery. But when we study the whole counsel of Scripture, we see God consistently standing against slavery. And the book of Exodus covers in details God's dream to see people released from slavery. And so the whole narrative doesn't support that claim. Uh, Some people compare the study of homosexuality in the Bible to the study of women's rights in the church. Um, Because in the New Testament, in Corinthians, Paul condemns women speaking and leading in that context. And that's tough. But when we study the whole counsel of Scripture, we get a different picture. See, Paul used women as deacons and as elders. He would name them before their husbands at times, which was never done in that culture. So even Paul trusted them in leadership. In the Old Testament, we see women leading and being important and valued in different ways, even specifically Deborah leading the entirety of the Israelite people. When Jesus resurrected from the, from the grave, these women that were leading in his ministry that he was close to, Mary Magdalene and some others, were the very first to see him in his resurrected form in all four Gospels. 
I believe that the whole counsel of Scripture leads us to a different conclusion. And so that brings us to number four. What does the Bible say? Okay. This is where the conversation gets really difficult. So, Jesus never specifically talks about homosexuality, but we can look at His teaching on marriage against the whole counsel of Scripture and make a conclusion. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3-6, through six, it says, Some Pharisees came up to Jesus and trapped Him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the Scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female, and He asked. And He said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. As Jesus answers this question, which is a whole other topic for another time, He anchors the conversation in what God affirms in terms of a traditional view of marriage. He calls to mind the language and references Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. He describes God's first creation, an intention of sexual intimacy being between a man and a woman in the text where it says, and the two are united into one. It's talking about sexual intimacy. This is Jesus describing God's view of sexual intimacy. It's anchored in creation. It's anchored in design. And this was a culture like ours. There was widespread homosexuality accepted throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, it's the only ancient culture where we see confirmation of gay marriage being a normal thing. But Jesus doesn't address or mention it when he's speaking in terms of marriage. Instead, he, he affirms God's design for a man and a woman to have sexual intimacy, which can create life to fill the earth, to cover the earth in God's goodness. It's in design. It's the narrative from start to finish in scriptures. It's not an isolated verse in, in Leviticus and Corinthians. It's a consistent narrative about the nature of sexuality. Every time the Bible talks about sexuality or marriage, this is the context. A male and a female. This is what the Bible affirms. So what does the Bible correct? Let's pause. See, I know this is hard. It would be a lot easier if it just said it was okay. If I could just say it was okay. But I'm convicted through study and prayer that this is what the Bible teaches. And I want to remind you that God is for you. And I want to remind you that I am for you. And no matter who you are, and what you've done, nothing can remove God's love from you. I am with you. 
Okay, let's keep going. What does the Bible correct? The Bible corrects sexual immorality in a, in a number of different ways. Most of the times that Paul brings it up, he uses one word, porneia, which we translate in about eight different ways. In the letters to the Corinthians, this is what he does. It's been widely pointed out that when Paul condemns homosexuality in Corinth, he's most likely condemning the regular practice of grown men taking young boys on as sex slaves. This is true. In Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite. And the Greek people worshipped her by buying sex slaves of all genders. But Paul writes something different in Timothy. See, Timothy was in Ephesus. And there was no temple to Aphrodite there. It's a different cultural context. There's, this is more of a Roman port city. And Paul doesn't use the word meaning sexual immorality here. He uses specific language. He uses a few words naming off different sins, including one that means the practice of sex between male and male. And then later when he wrote Romans 1, he uses different words to specifically talk about women having sex with women and men having sex with men in the context of sin. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and see what he wrote. Um, verse 3, let's start in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Um, Timothy received this letter after 2 Timothy. This is an older Timothy, and he's ready to quit. He's in Ephesus, and, and Ephesus has got these other churches in it now with these leaders that are teaching a version of Christianity blended with the culture that they lived in. And it, it was a mixture of what the culture affirmed and what the Bible taught. And it was making life very difficult for Timothy. In fact, he wanted to quit. He wanted to go back to Jerusalem where the context would be easier for him to do his job. But Paul says, Timothy, stay. Stay. Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the linchpin verse. Paul's writing this letter and he wants Timothy to understand that he wants him to stay in this city and stand on a hard truth, but the goal of it is love. Sincere faith. A pure heart. That's the goal. And listen, if you are gay... And somebody has used a verse like what's in verse 10 or any of these other passages to make you feel less than or to make you feel like you're going to hell. I am so sorry. The church hasn't done a very good job of this. You should never have been made to feel that way. But I want you to know the goal of this is love. I want to love you well. I want our church to love you well. 
love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here's the thing. Whenever there is a list of sin, I believe that passages like this one and the ones that are used in offense often in this conversation, I believe their intention was to show us how much we all need Jesus. Because whenever there is a list of sin, I can usually claim one of them as my own. I have lied significantly to people who matter to me. And so I am in this list, the same list as somebody practicing homosexuality. And I don't believe that practicing homosexuality will keep you from heaven or excuse you from the life-changing grace of Jesus. And I need you to hear me say that this morning. Now let's keep reading. Verse 6. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith of love that is in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Listen, Paul didn't write this list to point somebody else's sin out. Paul was using the Bible as a mirror. In fact, he, he gives this list and then he immediately tells you his place on it. So listen to me, Christian. Listen to me, person who, who falls on either side of this debate. You are on this list. Look what Paul even says. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said it's for me. This is for me. Paul makes sure to say, because the goal of this is love, where he falls on the list, that he is a sinner. That he looks at the whole view of Scripture as a mirror and not as a magnifying glass. And that he needs the grace of Jesus as much or more than anybody else. And so, fifth question. What do I do now? What do I do now? Christian who is straight and believes all that I'm teaching or some other version of it, listen to me. Search your own sins and pray for healing in them. We are all on a level playing field. None of us are innocent. 
In fact, I think if Jesus were around today, this would be a group of people he would spend lots of time with and offer lots of love to because in religious circles, the gay community is marginalized and Jesus was drawn to the marginalized. So I would encourage you to love these people well, to continue to grow your friendship with them, to, to continue to make them feel wanted and loved and accepted. I read these statistics this week. In the past 12 months, 42.8% of LGB youth seriously considered suicide compared to 14.8% of heterosexual youth. In the past 12 months, this is published this year, 29.4% of LGB youth attempted suicide and needed medical care compared to 6.4% of heterosexual youth. Church, let's change this. I think that what we do next deeply matters. If you are not gay, I think it's our job to love people so well that they stop feeling like there's no hope for them. I think it's to speak into the lives of these teenagers, these people just struggling with this, with everything they are. And make them feel like there is hope. Like God didn't make a mistake. that we should love people so well that they feel there is a place that they are wanted and loved. Now, if you are gay, this is so hard. Let me encourage you to dig into Scripture yourself, to look at the whole view, to pray through this a lot. If you need to take some time to be mad at me, I get it. But search God's Word keep growing closer to Jesus. My belief is that being gay is not a sin. That having same-sex attraction is not a sin. But that acting on it is a sin. I have desires in me that if I acted on them, would not lead to God's best for me. But I believe that if you have the desire to be in a physical relationship with the same sex. It's one of those desires. I'm not telling you to force a relationship with the opposite sex. My understanding of Scripture and the teachings therein are that it's best to say celibate. Maybe this was even part of what Paul alluded to in 1 Corinthians 7 when he offered his opinion that it's not better to be married if you can do it. And I understand what this is asking. But in return for our forgiveness, Jesus asks us for complete surrender. He calls us to leave anything and everything in behind in pursuit of him. On more than one occasion, people had things that they deeply loved that they weren't willing to leave. And Jesus called them to lay it down at his feet and surrender it to him. He warns us that it will cost. And surrender isn't easy. And if you're in a relationship with somebody that you love, 
of the same sex. I understand what I'm saying. If God asked me to lay down and surrender my relationship with my wife, Rael, I don't know. I don't know how I would respond. I hope I would be able to trust him. And I hope I would be able to surrender. When I had the, some of our friends over this week to talk through all this, one of them encouraged me to make sure that I answer this question. At the end of this, if I am gay and I don't agree with you, what is my place at the gathering? The answer is that your place is right here with people who love you and a church that will love you. And we want you to worship with us. We want you in our life groups and we want you on our dream team. But we do draw a line at leadership, which we do for anybody who has any sin issue we are aware of. But I want you to know that we want you here. We want you here because of who you are and who God has created you to be. We want you here because you are gifted with a purpose to serve. This is a family for you. Please know that the goal of this is love. It's not to condemn you or push you aside or to make you feel like you're not good enough. It's to love you well. And I need you to leave today knowing this. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of the one who created you. I don't know who has spoken what into your life. Nobody can take God's love from you. And I don't know what you've been forced to believe. And I don't know who stood on a stage like this one. One of the stories I heard this week and that I've heard before was that some pastor made a gay person feel that God could not love them because of who they were attracted to. I want you to know that is a lie from the devil. That's not what the scriptures teach. I want to leave you here today with a promise from the scripture. I want you to hold on tight to it. If you agree with me, if you disagree with me, wherever the spirit is pushing you this morning, wherever emotionally you are this morning, I need you to leave hearing this truth, this promise from the scripture today. No matter who you are, in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, he writes, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth Below indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That promise is for you today. God's love is upon you. He cares for you. He's got the heart of a father and you are his sons and his daughters. And all he wants is joy for you. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for who you are, God, for being a God of uncompromising truth and unconditional love. God, let your heart be at the center of this today. 
take whatever broken words I have and use them for your purpose. God, I just ask that in this place there would be a spirit of empathy and unity this morning. That, that we would love each other better. That we would love each other more. That we would, we would care for one another more, God. That this would be an okay place to be vulnerable and to ask questions and to hurt. That this would be a safe place to struggle. That, Father, this would be a place of hope for every person and every community. Be glorified in what we do, Lord. We love you. We just want to honor you this morning, God. We surrender to you. I surrender to you. I surrender everything I hold on to tightly at your feet this morning. It's yours. I give it up. As we go from this place this morning, God, and we continue to grapple in this conversation and these questions that, that God, your spirit would work and that you would be there and that you would comfort us and that you would give us peace and that, God, you would bring us joy on the other side of a hard conversation. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.